Welcome, everybody. My name is Corey Allen, and this is the Overton Report. This is our new podcast and radio show. This is episode two. Uh, so we didn't uh, get canceled after the first one, so that's always a good sign. So we've all seen what's happening around the country and around the state, and there are quite a few stories that, that I want to touch on. We're going to talk about the bank collapse, or all of the banks collapsing. We actually spoke with uh, a good friend and the founder of Curran Financial Partners, uh, Adam Curran, about this. He uh, he is an awesome guy. He actually has an ETF on the stock exchange that is anti-ESG. So stay tuned. We'll give you a clip of that. And uh, we also spoke to an EC hopeful, an executive committeeman hopeful from Charleston County, uh, South Carolina. He's going to tell us a little bit about what an executive committeeman position actually is within the GOP, uh, South Carolina GOP, and much, much more. But first, I want to touch on the left's weaponization of the justice system against a former president and possibly future president, a leader by any stretch of the imagination of the opposition party in the United States of America, being attacked by his political opponents. Of course, we're talking about Donald Trump. We are really facing a banana republic. Donald Trump is expected to be indicted this week by a Manhattan attorney. And this will this this of course stems from an alleged payment that he gave to Stormy Daniels who was a porn star as part of a non-disclosure agreement. Now, Bill Clinton actually did that with Paula Jones, and he was never arrested. They're claiming this is a campaign finance issue, but really what it is is the weaponization of the legal system against political opponents. And this is nothing new. We saw this on January 6th. We saw this all throughout Donald Trump's presidency, even when the political party was not in power, quote-unquote, the left still has complete control over the courts and the judicial system. And this is a problem. They've been weaponizing the law the same way that they've weaponized education, uh, the same way that they've weaponized common sense and language. Jeez, they've even weaponized womanhood, you know? It's, it's, they've weaponized the environment. Everything that they do is with the intent of coming at those who disagree with them and not having a discussion with those people. No, stamping them out in any way possible, whether that's calling them names, utilizing tech companies to censor and deplatform them, using the legal system as a weapon, like I said shouting people down, burning your buildings if you don't fall in line or at least shut up. As they continue this never-ending march towards absolute totalitarianism and this weird love child of communism and fascism melded together, it's very, very strange. But we are seeing it culminate now. Now, what I want to talk about, Donald Trump, he said, I'm probably going to be arrested on Tuesday. That's tomorrow as the time of this recording. That probably won't happen because of a couple of other things, uh, witnesses that they're going to be calling. Uh, 
to the grand jury. However, it might, it probably will happen this week. And one of the things that's very concerning to me is the amount of conservatives that are saying don't protest because they're weaponizing the legal system and using excuses like the January 6th political prisoners and then going on to say, well, if they'll use it against the president, they'll use it against you. And I've got a really big problem with that. Here's, here's why. So basically they're saying they are doing something wrong. Your government is doing something terrible, tyrannical, things you only see in developing nations. But don't speak out, don't stand up, or they'll do it to you. On one hand, these and these are Republican conservative type commentators we're talking about. On one hand, they're admitting that this is a total sham and that the legal system, the electoral system is failing us and being used against us. And then on the other hand, they're saying, if you really want to change it, just elect somebody different or give money to this candidate or that person. Why are conservatives so bad at this? For too long, Republicans have just taken their activists and tossed them to the side, laughed, looked down their nose at them. Meanwhile, the left understands the importance of activism. Do you think that if Obama was arrested or if some solicitor from a conservative state were even to threaten to do this to Obama or even Hunter, even if it was potentially going to happen for some nonsense charge in some conservative state that the left would be telling their telling their activists, don't don't protest, guys. Don't do that. Don't do that, guys. Just don't even go out there. Don't say a word. Just vote different. Yeah, because when's the last time you voted for a bureaucrat as the bureaucrats make laws that are used to be weaponized against a certain political party? When's the last time you did that? So on one hand... I understand the fear, and this is the other problem with January 6th, and this is conservatives' own fault, of course, because nobody stood up for what was right then. Hardly. Hardly anybody. No mainstream media, even Fox News, Newsmax, none of them, right? They all just shut their mouths. 99.9% of elected Republicans in the country shut their mouths. You let the left win. You let their intimidation win. You let them build a false narrative. You let them push that narrative for years. And now finally, because one dude on Fox News starts to speak up, finally you're starting to say something. But it's too late. The foundation has already been laid. Political prisoners have already been in prison for years. You did nothing. Now you've got Donald Trump about to be indicted. A DA, by the way, who literally ran his entire campaign on prosecuting Donald Trump. Like, that was it. That was what he ran on. So you allowed that to happen. Now, once it does happen, or is just about to, you have conservatives all over saying, well, just don't do anything. This is incredible to me. It's getting really, really crazy out there.
And I, and I don't think that it's going to stop. I think that this is the first of, of many that you're going to see drummed up charges, uh, misrepresenting reality in order to get a charge with the goal of intimidation. And that's it. It's just the goal is to intimidate others into being silent. And if you listen to the pundits and commentators out there on, on our side, apparently, well, they're succeeding. They are succeeding in scaring people away from taking action in their own government, for redressing their grievances. They're scaring us, and we're allowing it to happen. And that's a shame, because if we do that, if we allow that, we lose. We will lose. Look who's in the White House. Because we were afraid to stand up till it was too late, and when we finally did... The people who were supposed to be on our side at the highest levels abandoned us all. Shut their mouths so they could play the game another day. Now, what happens when nobody stands up for the rights of of their neighbors? For their rights of speech? For their constitutionally enumerated rights? Well, I guess we're going to find out soon, aren't we? Now, moving on. That shell game goes into economics as well. Now we have 250 banks that are at risk of collapsing. Credit Suisse, one of the largest banks in Europe, has been bought by UBS, United Bank of Scotland. Putting it squarely under the banner of some pretty creepy central bank owners out in that area. But we sat down with Adam Curran of Curran Financial Partners and we talked about the Silicon Valley Bank collapse and and what we really need to look out for moving forward. I'm going to play you some of that right now. How you doing, Adam? I'm doing good, Corey. I, when you called and said, hey, let's do this, I was like chomping at the bit because I, I almost want to rift with you a little bit because I know your DNA, God-fearing, flag-waving, conservative, slash maybe libertarian, touch of that in you. Yeah. Uh, and I kind of have a unique take on, on, on the Fed and the Treasury's bailout of Silicon Valley Bank. And let's get into it. Yeah, for sure. So so you say bailout of the bank, but I, I know that I've heard a lot of people uh, say that it's, it's not exactly it's not it's not exactly a bailout of the bank, but of the depositors. Is that right? That, that's exactly right. And, and I agree. You know, bailout, I think, is the wrong term. Bailout harkens back to the financial crisis in 2007, 2008, where we saw the big investment banks over leverage themselves. Some of these banks were leveraged 30, 40, 50 to one uh, by creating exotic financial products, credit default swaps, credit default obligations. And they all went kaput and it, it became a game of musical chairs where they were all basically, you know, swapping the products onto each other's balance sheets. And then the music stopped. And of course, Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns went belly up. Uh, and the remaining actors were bailed out. They were deemed to be too big to fail. And we basically, as American citizens, owned those investment banks by just literally printing money and, and putting it in our deficit. And then uh, most of that money did get paid back to, to play devil's advocate here. Um, but in essence, we rewarded terrible risk management. We rewarded drunken investment propositions. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this is not quite like that. This is not a bailout per se. 
this is a classic run on a bank. And now the Federal Reserve and Treasury and FDIC have come in and said, we're going to make depositors whole. So I don't like that word bailout either. Okay. Yeah. So, so just to kind of fill people in. So we had Silicon Valley Bank, which does a lot of stuff in the tech sector uh, and, and also does a lot of payroll work, apparently. Uh, they failed, what was it, Friday. Is that right? Or Thursday? That's correct. Okay. Yeah. And then over the weekend, uh, apparently Signature Bank, which Barney Frank, who we're about to talk about, he was a uh, board member there. They also failed. So Barney Frank has said that this is mostly caused by uh, risky investments in crypto and, and, that, and that sort of thing. What's your take on that? Why, why did this happen? Yeah, so uh, here, uh, the most troubling thing that I've seen from my vantage point is the 25-year-old quote-unquote journalist telling the world that this reminds them of 2008 all over again when they were 10 years old. <laughs> or someone like Barney Frank, you know, who doesn't know cryptocurrency from, you know, raffle tickets that come out of a ski mall machine, uh, saying that this was crypto-related. So let me let me go back to the beginning. On I, I can speak very eloquently to Silicon Valley Bank. Please do. To my understanding, Signature Bank, which is kind of the redheaded stepchild right now, that's the third largest bank failure, and no one's really talking about it. Everyone's fixing their eyes on Silicon Valley Bank because they were bigger than Signature. And that's the Silicon second, Valley right? That's the second largest bank failure in American history. Is that right? That's right. Okay. And, and the 16th largest bank in the country prior to their failure. Mm. Um so Silicon Valley Bank, it's a classic run on a bank. This, this bank had a very niche clientele. It was venture capital firms. In fact, there's 1,200 companies in this country that are being funded with venture capital dollars. One half of them banked with Silicon Valley Bank. Okay. And you needed to have like $2 million to even bank with Silicon Valley Bank. You needed to be a C-suite level a tech person or be a founder of a startup. So they had this very niche clientele and naturally most of their customers because of what happened to the technology sector in the stock market over the course of the last year, tech stocks were down 30, 40, 50% in 2022. Mm-hmm. Most of these venture capital firms were not cashing checks. They were not depositing money into their bank account. They were spending it for payroll and you know, capital expenditures. So in and of itself, the bank was against the ropes because their clientele weren't putting money into their accounts. They were taking money out of their accounts. Couple that with the bank's awful management of interest rate risk. So when you put your money into a bank account, that bank is going to either lend it out via a mortgage or a small business loan or an auto loan or a credit card, or maybe they'll buy some bonds. What Silicon Valley Bank did was they bought a number of long-term U.S. treasuries with a yield of, I think, 1.8% was the, was the bulk of them. Okay. So naturally, what happens to a bond when interest rates go up 300%? No one wants to buy your bond that you bought that's yielding 1.8% when they can now get a bond that's yielding 4%. Mm. So you've got these two things working in unison. Their customers are pulling money out of their accounts, and when they pull their money out of their accounts, the bank needs to sell their bonds. Now, if they were able to hold their bonds to maturity, 
all would be right, the bond would mature, the bank would get all their money back. But because they had to sell their bonds early... In order to make the depositors whole, like the depositors were coming and wanting to pull their money out, and they had to sell these treasury bonds earlier than expected in order to give them that money? Is that what it is? Exactly. You're selling bonds at a loss in order to satisfy your depositors' withdrawals. Mm. You're losing money. Now, here's where the cryptocurrency comes in. I don't know what Barney Frank's talking about, but... You would think someone with his, uh, you know, checkered past would probably just not talk, um, but he can't help himself. So because Silicon Valley's bank's balance sheet was so weak because of the two things I just described, they needed to raise capital in order to kind of fortify their balance sheet. Mm -hmm. So the same week they went to raise capital, a bank called Silvergate Bank, which is primarily a cryptocurrency bank has zero affiliation with Silicon Valley Bank other than the fact that most of the cryptocurrency projects are in a similar eco-chamber as Silicon Valley types. That bank went belly up. So that in and of itself doesn't look good um, for Silicon Valley Bank when they're trying to raise money. Someone at Silicon Valley Bank wrote a letter to investors, which I'd love to see the copy on this letter, but to my understanding it was god-awful. It did not inspire hope. In fact, it scared the daylights out of anyone who read it. And they sent this letter out to their investors saying, we need to raise $500 million because we want to like, you know, fortify our, our, our balance sheet. And then Peter Thiel, who's probably the greatest venture capitalist investor of all time, he runs a fund called the Founders Fund. He came out and he notified all of his venture capital firms within his Founders Fund to pull your money from Silicon Valley Bank. So you've got this niche clientele, and they all jump on Twitter and look at each other through their nostrils. Because they all know each other, right? I mean, they're all in the same industry, and they all are in the same chat groups, and they follow the same exact trade magazines and things like that. And they're all investing in here, right? And it just spread like a wildfire. Everyone started running to Silicon Valley Bank. This is not an issue with leverage. Uh, It's not an issue with exotic financial products. In fact, I'd argue to say some people are saying, hey, this is just the tip of the iceberg. A bunch of banks are going to fail now. Mm -hmm. Not every bank has such a niche group of clients. Silicon Valley Bank had a really unique thing in that their clientele were were really isolated to one industry. Yeah. uh, That being high tech. So that that seems like a lack of diversification, though, right? Is that not like antithetical to like risk aversion? They, they're hyper focusing in a single aspect. This is where this is where it gets fun, right? Because I, I see two sides. I think the bailout or the infusion of depositors as a small business owner. The other thing that's unique about Silicon Valley Bank: ninety three percent of their deposits were uninsured, right? So FDIC insurance yeah. protects us up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars per tax ID number. Mm-hmm. So. With this bank, because of how affluent their depositors were, only 7% of their deposits were actually insured by FDIC, the other 93%. So th- this is where it gets fun, you know, as a, a as a, someone who votes with their right hand on the other side of the country. You know, most Silicon Valley depositors voted for Gavin Newsom and Nancy Pelosi and Diana Feinstein. So it's fun to kind of laugh at them now, and, and naturally everyone kind of wants to eat the rich. <laughs> and you're right, you, you know, like... These are the same people who believed in a single payer healthcare system because the law of large numbers and you know helping out lots of different businesses, not just us hoity-toity Silicon Valley types, uh, lends itself to a better society. So there's a ton of hypocrisy here. You're absolutely right. 
if you want to hedge yourself against risk, you don't put all your eggs in one basket, meaning you don't just bank with one sector of, of the economy. And it's also, you know, before we get off the topic of Silicon Valley Bank, let's continue to kick them while they're down. Yeah. This is a bank that gave hundreds of millions of dollars to Black Lives Matter. Right. So, you know, a bank's only job should be to, like, audit where the money's going. Black Lives Matter is probably the most idiotic charitable endeavor a person could have pursued. There was there was zero accounting occurring there. There was zero uh, use of those monies for philanthropy. Uh, philanthropic efforts. I mean, it was just literally yeah. going to a couple of the founders. Proven embezzlement, proven fraud, nothing done, of course. But but at least from a financial perspective, they knew that that was happening. They knew. Like, there was no secret that Patrice Cullors was purchasing homes with the money. It was no secret in the financial sector where even though the the, the, the legal system might not be going after them, they knew that it was a bad investment and they still did it because – they needed an, a higher ESG score. And they based a lot of their stuff, correct me if I'm wrong, but they based a lot of their investments, they, they factored in ESG to extents that should definitely not have been, it shouldn't have they been factored in. They were pricing in. loans, right? So they were, so say like, you know, you and I are both hunting for a million dollar loan from a bank. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? All that bank should care about is, okay, how much assets does Adam and Corey have? What are their liabilities? What's their income flow? Let's look at their tax return for the last three years. Is there any, you know, uh, skeletons buried in these closets on the tax returns? Like, that's all they should care about if you're a bank. What is the propensity or what is the, you know, the percentage of me getting paid back and let me price that loan accordingly? Well, Silicon Valley Bank was repricing loans based off of pious, virtuous ESG metrics, right? So if someone had a rainbow flag on their Work Here website that says, oh, we believe in uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. That gives them extra points towards a loan? Yeah, your, your loan's a little cheaper. Yeah, because I think right? a lot of people, they'll, they hear ESG, but I don't think it's really ever been broken down in a very simple term. So it's like, it, it really is like, what is the race of this person? What is their ethnicity? Uh, what what are their stated beliefs on social media? Does this company put out information backing this social justice issue or that? Isn't that really kind of what it boils down to? At least in the in the uh, context of giving loans out to a five hundred one c four perhaps or, or or a business that is doing what they're doing. There's all these different companies basically saying, "Oh, you're a good ESG actor. You're a bad ESG actor." You know, S&P has booted uh, Tesla from their ESG index, even though Tesla's creating a car with a zero carbon footprint and trying to populate Mars. And, whereas Coca-Cola, a company that caused a, a, a brown, sugary, obesity-causing drink that litters our, our world, has a higher ESG score than Tesla. So <laughs> you hit the nail on the head. Like, these ESG scoring uh, factors are total, like, who's the wokest, who's saying all the right platitudes, wet your fingers, stick it in the air. And the people who are all in in that space, they they pretend that, you know, they're using these sophisticated metrics and they've got scorecards and gauges. But at the end of the day, it's just a judgment call mm-hmm. um, because it's like, oh, their rainbow flag is bigger 
on their website than this company's rainbow flag. Or let's say that Corey Allen's business donated $10,000 to BLM, but Adam Curran's business donated 50000 That puts you at a higher position. My loan's cheaper now. Okay. Uh, if, if, if Silicon Valley Bank, God rest their soul, is still around, I have a cheaper loan because <laughs> I gave more to Black Lives Matter. So let me just ask you, so that because I want to talk about uh, your anti-ESG ETF a little bit. But let me just ask you, is there any doubt in your mind that Silicon Valley's bank's interest in ESG scores played some role in people losing faith in it and going and running on it? Well, I don't think their depositors left Silicon Valley Bank because of their interest in ESG because most of their depositors were in Silicon Valley and they vote with their left hand and, you know, they love ESG. I do think that Silicon Valley's attention being paid to ESG might have taken their eye off the ball and how to run a good business. Right, which um, which then led to some legitimate actual failures and those actual failures and that led to that panic potentially. Well, I wonder – here would be a good question to ask uh, the depositors uh, last Saturday when we weren't sure there was a bailout happening. Uh, you know, someone who had a million dollars at the potential of being lost had they not gotten the bailout. Uh, ask that depositor how they feel about the diverse board that Silicon Valley put together, you know? Oh, okay. They had, not, okay. Not, not so good about it. I'd really like the board to run the bank properly. I don't care uh, right. you know, about the sexual orientation of the risk manager right now. I don't know so, how we failed. We have three gay guys on the board. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so, so that, that could help, right? As, as someone who believes in merit-based thinking and companies okay. should be designed like meritocracies, the fact that they were focusing their eyes and ears on, on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and ESG factor scoring, that can't lend itself to running a business problem. That's why we ran our. That's why we created our ETF, Corey. Yeah. Our whole ETF is based on the idea of I don't care about ESG. Like, if you want to get together with your friends and drink wine and talk about ESG, be my guest. But as soon as it starts creeping into the boardroom, as soon as you want to start making business decisions based off of uh, virtue signaling and woke platitudes, that's when we're out. I don't want any of my investors' money going into to businesses that are making choices like that. Absolutely. And uh, full disclosure before we talk, start talking about this, I do have uh, some money invested, not not a lot, not some life-changing amount, but just to, just enough to kind of follow. You know, it's on the New York Stock Exchange, right? And uh, it's called YALL, so it's Y-A-L-L, which I love. Anyway, by the way, it's up for ticker of the year. Uh, really? I think, I think we'll win it. I'm just guessing, wetting my finger and sticking it in the air. I think we'll win it. I think we, we have the best ticker that was launched uh, on the public traded markets this year. Okay, so you decided that you wanted to invest in businesses and create an ETF, which stands for what? Exchange traded fund. It's almost like a right. mutual fund that trades like a stock. So by buying one share of our ETF, you own about 40 businesses. Now, the way we yeah. chose the businesses uh, is basically what we did is we took the S&P 500, so the 500 biggest companies in this country, or, or basically all stocks with a market cap over a billion dollars, and then we just started boycotting and eliminating businesses from the investment universe that, in our opinion, were making political and social activist statements. Okay. Right? If a company decided to s- sign the We Stand for Democracy pledge, 
after uh, Georgia's election reform. Mm. They're gone. If a company gives money and then showboats and grandstands to Black Lives Matter, we get rid of them. Uh, you wouldn't believe the number of companies that felt the need to have their CEO on Talking Head TV uh, after the Supreme Court ruling of um, Roe v. Wade being a state's right. right. So oh, th- these companies can't help themselves. They, most of them are based in liberal epicenters. Something comes across the newswire that has nothing to do with their business. The PR departments, the social media departments feel the need to march out their opinion. And in our opinion, as investors, it is not good business to alienate and tick off 49 to 51% of your potential customers, your investors, your employees. When you could have just shut up and... And, and not had anything to do with it, right? Exactly. Now, it's one thing, like, you know, if they're talking about changing uh, FAA legislation and Delta decides to chime in. Oh, yeah. Now, but Delta, Delta wants to chime in on Georgia's election reform. Like, it has nothing to do with your business model. So it just okay. seemed like a shrewd investment thesis. When I saw the woke stuff coming, I was like, has everyone lost their, their, their minds? Why are publicly traded businesses making divisive statements you know i really do appreciate you kind of joining us and and letting us thanks thank you so much adam curran for for joining us uh i hope that this has been enlightening to the people give us a website where people can go because i know you have a book out too that's free yeah free book extra extra it's at retireyall.com retireyall.com yeah thanks man for joining us and and we will definitely keep up on this situation with you is there any reason for people to go out and start hoarding toilet paper no, I don't think no. so. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Court. So if you want to hear more of that, you can go to theovertonreport.substat.com, and it will be right there as an audio podcast. You can you can listen to it, uh, our whole interview, and, and I really do think that you're, you're going to get a lot out of it. I know I did. And, of course, once again, Adam Curran, you can, you can search – on, on Robinhood or wherever you trade stocks, it's called YALL, like Y-A-L-L. That ETF is anti-ESG. Next up, Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham was at a really cool event this weekend. It was unfortunate that Graham was there. But Lindsey Graham was at the Vision 24 uh, Conservative Political Forum. And this was put on by Palmetto Family, a great group uh, in North Charleston. Just this past Saturday. Now, when Lindsey Graham came on stage, uh, a veteran yelled out, Warmonger. Listen to this. Warmonger? You're at the wrong meeting. So Lindsey Graham, you know, he says, oh, you're at the wrong place. Ha, ha, ha. But then, if you listen to clips of the speech, which I'm about to play you, uh, you're going you're gonna to find that it was a very, very strange way to prove you're not a warmonger. Listen to this. Remind me not to invade Ukraine. These people will actually fight you. This started with Afghanistan, folks. We pulled the rug in Afghanistan. ISIS is coming back in Afghanistan. Putin has invaded Russia. Iran is knocking on the door of a nuclear weapon. And China is all over Taiwan. Other than that, things are going great. How do you fix it? You stand up to aggression early on. If you could go back in time, Tony, 
what would you have done differently with Hitler? You'd have stopped him early on, wouldn't you? So what is Putin doing? Rewriting the map of Europe by force of arms. I'm going to keep helping Ukraine. Give them what they need to win a war we can't afford to lose. So the second thing I would do is to authorize the use of military force to destroy the networks before they destroy America. They're at war with you. You need to be at war with them. I can't think of a better use of our military than the blow-up labs in Mexico. Yeah, yeah. So bombing Mexico, Iran, Taiwan, Russia. That's very interesting to say the least. But that wasn't what went viral this weekend from that conference. So that same veteran, as Lindsey Graham was speaking to uh, Russia and Ukraine and that conflict, that, that we're just we're trickling just enough money into Ukraine to keep it going, not enough to win. You know, it's I feel like it's one or the other. I, I believe and I think that a lot of people that are smarter than me have spoken to this, that we're putting just enough. And when I say we, I mean, you know, the Biden crime family are putting just enough money into Ukraine to one launder some of it back into the DNC uh, and two to keep the war hot, to keep it going giving just enough resources to Ukraine so that Russia can't win, but also not giving enough resources to Ukraine so that Ukraine can push them out because they want the war. The warmongering left and the neocon like Graham, that's what they want. They want to continue the war. So, Anyway, speaking of Putin, and he talks about the ICC, the International Criminal Court, put out a warrant for Putin. Now, nobody in the world takes the ICC seriously. They have no subpoena power. They have no power at all. They have no, no officers. Like, they can't go and pick people up, right? Nobody takes them seriously. No, never has. Never has. Especially not the United States. So, that same veteran yelled out into from the crowd remember this is this is a forum and it was meant to have these national figures hear what we the citizenry want okay so the veteran yells out the united states doesn't recognize the icc listen to what lindsey graham's response was so just shut up get out of here if you want to speak go run and get elected uh so here's the deal. I mean, that says it all, doesn't it? You don't get a voice unless you're elected, and he's elected. So you need to. You, you're not allowed to. You're not allowed to have an opinion. This shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody, however, because it's the same type of thought process that he used right here in the Low Country, just about six or seven, eight months after the January six event, where he said. That if it was up to him, he would have shot more people in the head. It wasn't peaceful. I was there. If it had been up to me, I would have shot some of these people in the head. Remember? So during the intermission, a bunch of people came up to that veteran and, and thanked him. And were like, thank you, you know, like, I agree with you. Which was really interesting to me because it, it got me to thinking, Back into that line of how conservatives never 
protests. We never, we, we are always silent. We shut up. We follow the line. I, I, I couldn't help but imagine if all of the people in that room who later came up to that veteran and said that they agreed with him and thanked him for doing it, imagine if all of those people had also stood up when Lindsey Graham told this veteran to shut up and get elected if he wants a voice. Imagine if all of those people who agreed with that veteran at that moment stood up and made their voices heard. That's something conservatives never do. They never stand together. They sit behind TV screens. They yell at them. They yell at their radio. But when it comes time to go to an event, to go to a protest, to put work in, besides coffee house meetings and tea parties, when it comes time to put the work in, well, we're just too quiet. We won't do it. And a lot of it is because our politicians, our elected officials, our high-ups in the Republican Party and in conservatism have proven that they don't support us acting. They don't support their activists. They don't support, they don't support the politics of people. Look, if the electoral system is falling and failing and, and hurting, you can't vote yourself out of that. You have to stand up together and say no more. Now, the last thing I want to talk to you about actually is, you know, reorg in South Carolina, uh, and especially in the GOP, is a really big hot topic right now. And recently, we sat down with Dennis Brown. Uh, he actually was the campaign manager for Duke Buckner, a Republican who ran against James Clyburn this past cycle. And he's now running for executive committeeman of Charleston County Republican Party. So we sat down with him to get his take on what he thinks he might be able to accomplish in that role. He also helps us run through what an executive committeeman does, as well as the process of precinct reorganization and county reorganization which is happening throughout the state throughout March and April. So here's what Dennis has to say. Tell us what the responsibilities of a county uh, executive committee person are. Sure. In accordance with the bylaws from Charleston County, um, my job is to go and represent Charleston County at the state level with the state party, attend their meetings, um, become a part of their of a committee if necessary uh, and basically wherever I can fit to do the most good for the state party as well as Charleston County and the second piece of the official second piece of the job is to come back and, and give a full report of state business uh, as far as the Republican Party is concerned. How often do the ECs go up? Is it once? Is it, is it a once a month thing? Once a quarter? I think well I think it really depends on your involvement. It's, it's minimally at once a quarter Okay. Um, it, it could be monthly. It could be even more than that, depending on if you belong to a committee or if you're a part of an or, uh, organizing something or whatever. So it could create um, that you're going there more often. My number one focus is 
Charleston County Republican Party. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Corey, I'm not opposed to going there daily. Um, if if I think it, it helps advance the cause of what's going on in Charleston County. I, I 100% want to do what's right by the state and, and, and by the state party. And I'll be looking for ways to do that always. But my priority is going to be Charleston County. That, that's my focus is Charleston County. And what whatever tools that I think I can bring back to this county to help advance the conservative cause here is, is going to be a high priority for me. Do you think that the current leadership and uh, the current EC for Charleston County, do you think that he's used his position for that? Do you think he's used his position to try and help increase wins in Charleston right. County or? That's an interesting question, Corey. Um, I'm going to go back two years ago to when we reorganized our county. If, I don't know if you remember or not, but we had one person running for chair. We had one person running for vice chair. We had one person running for EC. Mm-hmm. As you know, that's not the case this time. So I, I really think that the, the, I, this feels healthier to me. Yeah. So we have some choices that steel is sharpening steel. And the, the, the people of Charleston are going to get the, the, the Republican folks who live here in Charleston County are going to get a chance to speak and they're going to get a chance to express their feelings. And I've also really worked hard. I, I don't, this may sound odd. I don't feel like I'm running against anybody and I, I'm running for the seat because I really have I my thoughts on what I want to do with it. As for Mark Hartley, um, the people of this county are going to get to decide. Okay. So we're going to learn. We're going to learn together. Absolutely. You know, there were yeah. some, uh, there were some things that happened at the last reorg. I was, I was there um, mm. watching as everything unfolded and you know, there was just the issues with the delegates not being yeah. written on it. And I, I'm going really... to do a lot, some, some yeah. stuff on that yeah. later. Yeah. But this also like, what I think is important here is that this surpasses just Charleston County too. I mean, this, this is, it's the same thing in every County where if you only have one person running for a seat, like you said, I mean, that's not really, that's not how you get the best, right? Yeah. That it's just, if you don't have choices, you're kind of taking out the entire, I don't know, the entire spirit of everything yeah. that we base our system on, aren't you? Correct. You know, steel sharpens steel, Corey. When you have an earnest debate and then the people get to decide, it, it just feels healthier. Mm-hmm. And I, I've told everybody that when I win, if I win, I'm going to get to work that day. That day the work begins. And if I, if I don't win, then the first thing I'm going to do is go shake the winner's hand. And I think sometimes in, in Charleston, we're a little, Corey, we're a diverse group. We're not monolithic. We're diverse. We, we, we're all conservatives. We all, we're all Republicans, but we all approach it from different directions. Mm-hmm. And I just want everybody to understand that my intention is to represent all and when I say all, I, I, I always, when I speak, I always say capital A, capital L, capital L. I'm going to represent all. I think a part of that, a big part of that is is me listening, is yeah. just listening, just having the conversation. But at some point of that conversation, that it's important for me, if, uh, if I have a seat, is to shut it down and listen to what people are saying to me. So I best know how they want me to represent them. My feeling on this seat, Corey, is it's their seat. It belongs to the Republican conservative people of Charlotte. It's their seat. Mm-hmm. And what I'm asking for is their trust and their support and their vote. Um, but I'm never going to lose sight of the fact that it's their seat. It belongs to them. Uh, it's interesting that you that you bring up that, that point about it being their seat, uh, the people's seat, and listening. Uh, mm-hmm. Around the whole state, 
this has happened in, in, in it's no secret that South Carolina's Republican Party is hyper factionalized. There are mm. factions of conservatives, like you said, coming at conservatism or republicanism from different points. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, there's no secret that there's some fairly liberal ones as well. So what often seems to happen at the uh, chair level or the EC level or even the vice chair, if the person who it holds that seat is part of one faction or another, mm. a lot of people feel, me included sometimes, that that person will make a decision based almost solely off of wanting to do the opposite of what the other faction wants. Whether or not it's right or wrong, it's just factional rather than uh, principles or or philosophically correct. So is that something that you kind of want to want to put a pin in and and keep from happening? You want to you want to include all the different groups and factions in the decision making process? 100 percent. And you know what? Um, you get into these earnest debates and you get into these conversations and you you got to let that happen. Um, you, and it is OK to agree to disagree. It doesn't you have, have to, to have the conversation in good faith. In good faith. It doesn't have to be a flamethrowing competition. It could be just we're having an open, honest debate. And and um, sometimes it's OK to say, listen, let's agree to disagree on this particular issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's not shut down the conversation. Let, let's keep the conversation going. Let's keep having the conversation and let, let's keep having the debate because I I promise we're going to find more things to agree on than we're going to find to disagree on. At the end of the day, we are all Republicans and we are all conservatives. So we're going to find common ground. You know, it may be how we go about it. It may be how we approach it. It may be the methodology behind it. And we may, and that's okay. We can have debate and conversation about that. Corey, the, the, the presidential election is going to come steamrolling right through South Carolina, right through Charleston. Um, so what happens here, there's going to be a bit of a national impact oh, yes. to, to it. And so we have to even, we have to pay attention to the school board and we have to pay that attention to the presidential cycle um, and everything in between. Because um, it's coming right through us. It's coming right through here. I mean, we had Nikki Haley announced right here in Charleston. And we have office, Tim Scott. Head who, office is here. Yeah, we have Tim Scott. He, he's currently on a, a listening tour of the country. Um, I'm sure James Tyburn is going to do his Joe Biden thing again. So and, we and have South to understand Carolina, who the South Carolina is going to be the first state for the Democrat primary. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that this is. That's why this reorg to me is is actually more important than at least the last one or the last couple in my mind because this this year the next year to year and a half South Carolina is going to be the focus of the nation. I think that that is what we're contending with here, and we really have to be able to bring all sides of the Republican Party to the table. Otherwise. We're going to get a North Carolina or Georgia type thing happening here. And I think that's the reason that the Democrat Party is hyper focusing on South Carolina and moving it to the first state, because their goal is to make South Carolina more of a swing state, work towards that end. And Mm -hmm. it won't take much if we have people in leadership who are saying, I don't like your faction, so I'm going to do the opposite of everything you say. Like we can't have that happening on any side. So 
I think it is. I important. totally agree. Yeah. Right. And so there's just one uh, one other thing that I'd like to ask you about for people out there. I know a lot of people that watch my show are pretty clued into politics, uh, especially mm. South Carolina, but uh, but still a lot of people don't really know how this process works. Sure. Um, it's not a normal election. It's not like anybody because we don't register parties. Right. So it's mm. not like just anybody off the street can come in that day and vote. It's it's a totally different system of delegates. So can yep. you just run us through quickly sure. the process and how those things work? 100%. Uh, it's, it, I like the way, in fact, you use the word process. It is definitely a process election. Uh, the state of South Carolina uh, requires that all political parties reorganize themselves every two years. That's the word reorg. Um, it looks very much like a caucus, like the Iowa caucus, for example, uh, but we here in South Carolina, we call it reorg. What happens, um, it's a two-part process. The first part is um, our county will hold a reorg, and it'll be on March 25th. And, and people who are Republicans will come to reorg in their precinct, and every precinct will meet. It will elect a president, and it will elect a vice president. It will elect a, um, a secretary, treasurer, and every precinct will elect an, an executive committeeman. And then it will elect delegates to go to the county convention. Right. Now, just because you are elected an officer doesn't mean you're necessarily going to be a delegate, but you've def- you can definitely become both, but you have to go through your precinct. So and- once it's been established who your officers are inside your precinct and who your delegates are inside your precinct, of the five officers that you pick, it is the executive committeeman who can go to monthly meetings and actually cast a vote on any issue within the Charleston County Republican Party. Right. People think it's the president. It's That's not the case. The person who has the vote is the executive committee. That's the first piece of the process. You, you elect your officers, you elect your delegates. Now, the second piece that will happen in April, where your delegates will go to the county convention. Mm-hmm. At the county convention, um, they will swear in a temporary chairman to run the actual convention. Right. Now they're gonna pick who the chairman, the vice chairman, and the executive committeemen are for the for the county. And then they'll elect delegates for the state for party. For the state, then. for the state, that's correct. They'll the hold an election for delegates to the state convention. Well, I think, dude, I think that we've broken this all down and given people kind of an idea and an understanding of what the EC does. Uh, what you will do as EC, uh, and and I, I really do appreciate you joining me here. Now, I just want to say one thing, though. Uh, so the Charleston reorg, uh, precinct reorg, which is step one, guys, uh, mm-hmm. is March 25th. That's right. Correct. Uh, you, you can go to the um, Charleston County, the CCRP webpage. Mm-hmm. Uh, the county has been broken down. I believe it's in nine districts. Find out what district you're in and what, and what the district that you're in will tell you where you're going to go to reorg. And anybody um, can do that, right? Correct. Yeah. Um, they will check your, you, you have to be a registered voter. Right. And they will check that you are a registered voter in, in the state and in that precinct. Correct. Right. Yes. Correct. Yeah. So, and, and that's that's specific to just the Charleston area, right? Each county will have their own date. Each county does their own, has their own thing. Um, I think they're, I think they're all required to report back to the state level by April. So okay. they can. So the, the the state party can do their get 
get prepared and do their thing. Absolutely. Okay. So I just wanted to put that out there. So somebody watching this in, you know, Fort Mill doesn't show up somewhere on March 25th and like, Oh, what's going on? Thank you so much uh, for, for joining us, Dennis. I, uh, you know, good luck to you. And, and thank you for the work you've done for the Republican party so far. Uh, I know that I'm not the only one that appreciates that. I hope to talk to you soon, and I guess we'll probably see you at Reorg. I will be there. <laughs> I will be there. Hey, Corey, thank you for the opportunity. This, this has been great. Thanks. Oh, of course, man. I, yeah, I really appreciate you, you joining us. So, And if you want to see the rest of that interview, you can go to YouTube.com slash Overton Report, or you can just type in the Overton Report on YouTube and... You can find it there. Look, if there is one thing that I can tell you for certain about conservatives, it is this. We have to stand together against elected officials, against the bureaucratic tyranny, against the left, and against those even in our own party who are dragging us down into the depths of World War III an economic collapse. You have to. But instead, we stay silent. Even when somebody's saying something we agree with, because there's something something about conservatives, man. When they see an elected Republican, they just... It's like fanboy status. They freeze. And we have to stop doing that. Those people are fallible. And... And it's more important for them to be criticized for their actions than it is for anyone else to be. Because their actions affect hundreds of millions of people, if not billions of people, when you're talking specifically about the United States of America and foreign policy. Billions of people. But that's not to say that there there isn't a place... For electoral politics, of course we have to do that, but we have to do it in unison. It's very important to get involved. It's very important to get involved in your local party uh, and learn how these things work. Volunteer. Run for a position after you learn. Last thing, follow me personally on Facebook. Go to facebook.com slash Overton, and you'll find me. You can follow me, and you'll be linked to all of these things that we're talking about today. I really appreciate you guys tuning in and giving us a listen. I hope you stay tuned, because there is a lot more coming up, and you can catch us right here every Monday night on BigPatriotRadio.com at 6 p.m. If you miss it, you can always catch it a couple of days later at TheOvertonReport.Substack.com. Once again, my friends and fellow patriots, my name is Corey Allen, and this has been The Overton Report.